Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. everyone. I apologize for this coming up a day late, but I have been moving house and this has been a process since literally 2018 when we bought this land. We've been designing the house. Somewhere in there we had some babies and we finally got in after construction going on through 2020, which was quite a stressful time. So in amongst moving, we all got sick and... I had to take the day off to be home with the kids and I'm now on some light duties after some other illnesses and things that I've been experiencing, which I touched on last episode. And I wanted to let you know that when I went to speak to my principal about the fact that I wasn't feeling great, and I actually was inspired by a number of my colleagues and also by EJ Kafupples on Instagram. I will tag her in the show notes because she's been experiencing some severe back pain and is on half days. And I was just like, can we do that? And it's funny, isn't it? Once you start seeing what's possible and what other people ask for and get, you start to think, well, maybe I could advocate for myself better when you, when you realize that those options are available to you. Anyway, when I spoke to my principal, I'm not feeling well. He said to me, Laura, number one is your health. Number two is family and relationships and this place and this work, although I love it, comes somewhere after that. And I thought, if you're not hearing that in your workplace, I'd like to be the person to give you that message because it was so wonderful and comforting and I just felt completely seen and heard and respected as a human, not just as a teacher. And so I think... Yeah, it's kind of shifted my mind a lot to realize that I can be a great teacher and still put myself first because I think that there is this real martyr mentality in teaching where we think we have to just keep on going because of the kids. And at the end of the day, if we're falling apart and there's nothing left, it's not worth it. Just a reminder that you are important as a teacher and your health is important and your family and your personal relationships and all the things that are part of your life that are outside of that teaching journey is incredibly important. My podcast today is with Leslie and Leslie and I actually met when we were studying together in 2006 in England. She's Canadian and obviously I'm Australian and we met in our dorm and we were both studying literature at the time and Leslie went on to do far more education in literature, getting her PhD where I went on to teach high school. But we have remained in contact and we literally met through learning and continue to learn together and continue to be a touchstone for one another. And she moved into the university sphere and is now also doing women's self-defense instructing and teaching in a whole different environment and she is inspiring and wonderful and insightful and honest and vulnerable in this conversation and just sort of says it how it is which I kind of love and it's why I've always really really respected and and appreciated our friendship if you're enjoying the podcast please share it 
tag me at educating Laura and feel free to give back to the podcast. You may buy me a virtual coffee, which is linked in the show notes as well. Otherwise, just enjoy. I hope you get something out of this conversation. I certainly did. And wishing you the best week. Hello, Leslie. It's so lovely to have you with me today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. How are you, Laura? Yeah, really good. So we met when we were 21 doing an exchange program in the UK and you have had so many educational experiences both as student and teacher. So I'd love to find Mm -hmm. out how important or what role education has played for you in your life. Wow, that is such a great question. So very broadly speaking, I've always been drawn to just learning stuff, like even after like I, I finished my PhD. Oh God, what year is it? Like like seven like seven years ago, which is wild. Yeah, and I just feel like I haven't stopped learning. Like even te- like teaching academically, like of course you're always learning stuff and like researching and and all the rest of that stuff is is really wonderful. But just even more broadly in life, it's just makes life better. Learning new things and and like if I find too like at different stages like learning physical things or sciencey things, even though like my background is humanities. Yeah. So huge, huge role. Um, I would say the reason we met, right. was because we're both pursuing our education, you know, it was an undergrad yeah. degree. And uh, I yeah. feel like, I feel like Laura, we, <laughs> when we were like there at, at that university yeah. in the UK, we were not maybe the most focused focused on the <laughs> educational aspects of that. it. Of course we were. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, of course we were, right? But we were yeah. also like interested in the like the life experiences. Like mm-hmm. we traveled together like during and after our courses and and that was that was yes. amazing. It's been something to do. And I don't want to reduce my own particular educational pathway to that, but it just kind of felt like the most natural thing I wanted to do next right? You just kind of get hungry for something and you pursue those interests. And when you meet such wonderful, interesting, diverse people around those sort of gravitational nodes of education, it's like, oh, this is good, you know? And it's the, it's the discussions in the class, but also like outside, right? So it really is a bit like the larger community around each of those educational endeavors I would say yeah that's kind of that I found some of the most rewarding parts of it so the classroom is only one aspect of what you are able to learn when pursuing anything new and learning something new 100% yeah 100% yeah both of your parents are quite highly educated and quite successful in their own fields quite different fields Mm -hmm. was that important for you or how did that sort of influence you as a child watching them your dad's hmm. a doctor, is that right? And your mum is in like finance. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So my mum's a financial advisor. My dad's a family doctor. Yeah, I guess they they were always like, you can do whatever you want to. What do you want to do? And I think hmm. I've got two younger brothers. They didn't steer us particularly in any one direction, except for just asking us to think about what we wanted to do. Hmm. I think they kind of just trusted that the three of us would do something that worked for us. Mm-hmm. As long as we were thinking about those po- just possibilities. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Do you think university was always the direction you were encouraged to go? I would say yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, so whatever you're going to study at university, what is it going to be? It was kind of sort of like built into the conversation. 
Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Where do you want to go to university? Oh, you could be this school or that school or whatever. But okay. it was like, like sneakily, <laughs> sneakily put in there. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm, I'm glad, right? Like it, it, it suited me in a, in a lot of ways. Right. And then you kind of make your decisions as you go. My youngest brother did like an interesting turn. He, he did his undergraduate degree in physics and then he became a registered massage therapist. So, and he's doing osteo training now. So very right. different. But like, yep. you know, he had that, he had that experience and then he did something else, you know, so. What kind of student are you? Mm, I'm a distracted student, I would say. <laughs> okay, why? <laughs> um, I get distracted thinking about other things. So like I, I get drawn into something. So yeah, I can do that very sort of deep study. But then there's always like, your mind goes off into other tangents and you, you think, you start thinking about the connections be- between things. Also, I, I find I have never really been that student who sort of like sits and works for like four hours. Like I need to move around I need to do stuff. So I, I feel too like I like I've always kind of just let things simmer, mm-hmm. you know, in between working, studying, thinking actively about whatever educational project I've been working on and then taking a break, getting some fresh air, going for a jog, whatever, or working too, right? Like it's always, it's always been very balanced. I I feel like, you know, there's times when I look back and I'm like, oh, I wish I'd just been a little more dedicated in my studies, you know, Mm. or just set aside this time to just study. But I don't know, it's that other, you get distracted with things like, oh, need to get a job or, yeah, I would say that's a good question, Laura. I'm just kind of like (laughs) extroverting my thinking here. While you're thinking about it, I'd like to make the comment that it's such a stereotype that we associate sitting for long periods mm. of time as being a dedicated mm-hmm. student. And I don't necessarily think that that's the truth, but that's the model that we get. Like if you are able to sit yeah. at your computer and be motivated to do that one thing for a long extended period of time, then that makes you a good student. And I think that that comes from the model of education that we see at school. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if you can sit there, you are rewarded. Yeah. And I don't think that that's actually true. It's just what we absorb in society. So I wonder, like, if you could have had an educational experience as a student in high school, would it have been, you know, sitting around doing all your subjects? Would it have been having time to break? What would have been better for you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Yeah, totally. Like, what would you have liked? I don't know. I mean, like we're talking, if we're talking like a radical remodeling of the education system, um, I would say building, Mm, yeah, building, (laughs) building in physical movement to any kind of intellectual endeavor that you're pursuing. When I say distracted, I, I mean, like, I mean that on all levels. Like, I mean, like sitting and focusing for long periods of time or, or not, but also just in life. If life is like a globe, education, like formal education has been like a part of that. And then mm. there's everything else that's also really interesting and exciting. And like, like we're talking about at the beginning, like you said it really well when you said that the classroom is one part of that learning experience. Mm. So I would say I, I, I often get very distracted by other opportunities for learning outside yeah. of the, the more formal structure. But yeah, no, I agree with you. I think, I think in a lot of students are like that too, like just having mm. more opportunity to move around, like move around in your body. And, and we're not, raised that way institutionally mm. right it's sit you face forward you pay attention to the teacher I had one teacher in high school during the IB program 
who was an English teacher and she was really great because we'd, we'd do our sort of book discussions and she would have us put our desks in a circle. Right. Mm. So, and I mean, that's sort of sta- like standard practice. I, I would say like for a seminar at university level, but at high school, it's like, Oh, this is really interesting. This is, this is much more conversational and less sort of like top down instruction. So even things like that, acknowledging that sort of, variety of doing things, but also that, yeah, the movement piece is really key because like our brains are physical organs, right? Like they need oxygen, Mm. they need nutrients, they need to, you know, they need different kinds of stimulation at different times. So I think that if our systems, and I know you're in Australia, I'm in Canada, but if our systems could get on board with, I just, I think diversifying those models, that would be a good thing for students. In Canada, to be honest, you have some very vocal educational leaders. There's some pretty amazing people doing really big things mm-hmm. to try and bring some of those ideas about. But it's to have such a huge systemic change yeah. takes time, takes a lot of dismantling, takes a lot of disgruntled people. And retraining, right? Like retraining yeah. the like those long-standing systems of the here's how we train teachers. Mm -hmm. that costs money and time Mm -hmm. yeah it's also I think family expectations because I've spoken a lot about the fact that you know at the end of the day a school and a university is a business in which Mm -hmm. it needs to have clients ultimately come to it and so you have to market it based on what families want what parents want what they want for this for their children and if we perpetuate that model of good learning Mm -hmm. being result driven then who's going to send their child to a school that looks disruptive or looks Mm -hmm. as though it's not going to get that end result that they need. And I know you've been in university for a long time and you were saying that there is that capitalist element to university. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Like so much of it comes down to like the public perception of the university. Definitely. And the public's expectations of that particular university. And I think there are these longstanding, as you rightly say, biases around how serious an institution is going to be taken based on how rigorous or structured it is. Right. And those, those ideas are so colonial. Like they're so Mm. entrenched because of this long militant, like history of the way things are done. Like it's very British. Right. Mm. So, I mean, I think like those, those are very dominant narratives and the, you know, the population that tends to buy the most into those narratives is the population that is in fact benefiting from them the most and is invested in them. So structurally they are perpetuated in that way. When you have alternative schools, you know, attended by students, you know, who are children of parents who are a little more radical in their thinking and a little more interested in like decolonizing the classroom, interested in sort of, I think just making space for students in sort of relatively speaking, what are radical ways like, yes, that opens up new possibilities, but it's a, di- it's a different commercial investment in that as well, right? I, I think sort mm-hmm. of people get to the stage where they're realizing like, oh, well, maybe my child's education could look like this, um, or the young adult is thinking maybe my education could look like this. There's that element of really rethinking about, re- really rethinking the question of whether the system has to look like this and what this has to offer. And what are those capitalist underpinnings of making money and you know, that in turn buttress that system of uh, reputation and just public facing image, you know. Mm. Have you sort of found that you have an idea and you and people go, oh, look, we probably won't get the students for that or, mm. you know, we can't fund that. 
or it's not going to be seen as worthwhile or something. So something that you believe could have been quite good and beneficial isn't explored because ultimately they don't believe it will be lucrative in any way for the university or for the school. I mean, I wish I, I wish to answer this question properly that I had more like experience in like yeah. upper level administration of universities. Like I'd love to be a fly on the wall in some of those meetings. I haven't been. So it's really hard yeah. for me to say like what really informs those decisions. What I can speak to is what I observe. Mm-hmm. I just don't see a, a lot of that. I guess it depends on the discipline too, right? But there's, it's Mm. just, I I don't think it's changed that much in the last, oh, like 18 years, really, like in terms of structure Mm. and, you know, the ideas, the ideas that are talked about in the classroom are evolving and changing. And, you know, like there've been some really amazing revolutionary movements around the world recently, but it's in terms of like the actual structure, right, of, of Mm. the way that, courses are delivered, uh, degrees are conferred. I don't know, like, I, I may, like, it'd be interesting to talk to somebody who's, you know, if you got a few more decades under their belt than I do. But if it hasn't changed, if, what I do, what I do see as well is there's an increasing imperative to go to university in order to get a sort of what's considered a quote unquote, basic level of education, right? Um, mm-hmm. So like, you would have heard this before, like university is the new high school, you have to finish you know, your undergraduate to, to get any kind of employment. Mm. And in that sense, that, that really is like, that aspect is, is quite frustrating because it does keep those graduating students impoverished because they have to pay so much for this undergraduate education that they may not actually use in the job, in the field that they go into afterwards. So then yeah. we have this debt and that kind of just it, the fact that t- like tuition is going up and, and, all I'm going to say, I guess, is there is a machinery to it. And mm. I don't know, maybe one day there'll be like this radical university where it's like free and um, it's, it's, Imagine. it's funded and it's not so much about like the degree or the certificate or the grade or the evaluation, but just the experience of, and then again, it's like, this is, there's, there's a reason, I guess, like we have qualifications, right? And again, like I'm talking from a humanities perspective, there's a reason we have qualifications. There's a reason we do focus on certain criteria, on certain pedagogical goals, right? Because they're important, mm. right? They absolutely are. But I also just wonder what another system might look like sometimes. Yeah, I just wonder. <laughs> I think there's more voices in Australia around the fact that university is one avenue. Mm. When I was at school, it certainly wasn't that. I feel mm. it was very much around the qualification is essential. It's either a trade qualification or a university qualification, Mm -hmm. nothing else is a valid pathway after school. And so most of us just went to university. The problem now is the fact that with COVID, Mm. the level of international students is now so low Mm. that we're bringing in a lot of the financial support for universities that it's now the students of the country that will have to foot that bill. Yeah. Which, And that's the other thing too, I've, I've spoken before about, education here to do an education degree majority of the time you have very very little in school training until the very end and Mm. the cynical part of me feels like that's a way of maintaining students until the end as well because they don't actually know what the job is until their third year and they go oh my goodness I can't do this as I said I'm a bit I'm a bit cynical I do understand that money is essential for everything to 
run mm-hmm. and we've have had some letting go of academics at universities here because exactly that that they don't have the financial backing now that they once did mm-hmm. so I can see it from a logical perspective and I can see it from a very idealistic perspective mm-hmm. and it's just a hard one to rectify because the debt isn't is a thing yeah. where yeah. you have that's great that everyone expects a limited degree or, or a bachelor at least but then you've done that paid money for something that you never get a job in mm-hmm. or that there is no job in you know yeah. and I'm in terms of your qualifications, can you clarify for me what your qualifications are? Yeah. So I did like the standard, like bachelor's, master's, PhD, like in that order. Why the PhD? Why did you go that level of qualification? I was curious. And what was your PhD in? Yeah. It's art. Yeah. So, so English literature all the way through, um, although I did a minor in philosophy at the undergrad level, I just had more to explore. I had the the wonderful fortune of having some really inspiring professors during my undergraduate degree uh, and during my master's. And I just, I had more questions, you know, I was still hungry. So that's, I mean, really that's what it came down to. I didn't, I didn't, when I started, I didn't have an agenda. I just, I was like 24, you know, it's like, yeah, this, this feels like the next right thing. And so it was never in pursuit necessarily of, the career or the money or that stable job, it was more in pursuit of interest for you. When I started, absolutely. Right. And again, I think too, like you, you're in your like early to mid twenties, you're just kind of like, you've got your whole life ahead. You're like, what do I want to do next? And and that felt just like the right thing for me to do. And then as I sort of went through, like, I liked it more and more, you kind of get funneled into, well, this is the job that you do when you come out of this mm. degree. And then that sort of, yeah, that was, that was just kind of the, the path I got funneled into. So tell me about that yeah. path. Tell me about that job. So I know that you write and teach courses at universities. So what are the courses that you like to teach that you are often relegated to teach? I mean, my area of expertise is Victorian imperialism. Um, that's, that's what I did my PhD mm. in. That's what I wrote my book on. And I, like I, I talk about um, the dynamics of, gender and race and colonialism. So it's really like issues of power and narrative and narrative authority are really sort of what drive my thinking and focus. Um, In terms of like my actual job, I I did not, you know, finish my PhD and get a professorship because those, those jobs are so, they just don't exist in large quantities anymore. Let me just put okay. it that way. <laughs> so okay. for those of us who are still teaching at university, but not tenure track, we're called, so in Canada, sessional instructors, which means we get hired on a contract basis. So we might get hired sometimes like a couple months, but more often a few weeks before the course starts. And then we have to wow. teach that course. I have taught a lot of different things. Like I've like, even though I'm a Victorianist by training, I have taught restoration literature, the long 18th century, British literature, Victorian stuff, but also like world lit. Really, it's just been about like, honestly, applying for stuff and go, mm. going with, with what's available. And it really is not a stable mm. job. It's quite precarious and you just, you have to, you have to like it because yeah, it's, it's not the kind of work, like find, like if I'm being honest, 
financially it's not really sustainable. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't really set you up. And, and I think that the way that academia works is like the longer you teach sessionally, the less likely you are actually to get hired. Really? Yeah. It's interesting. Right. Cause you'd think like, Oh, well, seven years after finishing my PhD, I've published stuff. I've, I've written this book and um, I've taught like X number of courses and I'm a much better teacher, writer, researcher than I was seven or eight years ago. But actually like the most likely statistically speaking in North America, the most likely time that you are going to get hired for a tenure track position is before you actually finish your PhD. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. So there's a machinery in that, right? There's, there's definitely like a machinery involved in that. So is there like something like nepotistic about that where somebody will spot you or there's someone who has their eye on you and sort of gets you into those roles? Or is it very much about interviewing well, having the right, being there at the right time? What do you think? I think you have to, you have to play it like a master chess game. Right. Really? It's all of the above, right? It's everything you said. It's, it's the interview skills. It's also the fit with the institution, right? It's also your CV, what you've done. It's also sort of, you know, I think it really does if like somebody knows somebody, it just, it does help for sure. But oftentimes it really just does come down to fit. Like, are they looking for somebody who does this thing or they really want somebody who does that? And the fact is like in your, in a one person's field, there might be like one or two jobs per year that come up and there's Mm -hmm. like hundreds of people that are qualified to do really good jobs, you know, teaching that particular thing. And again, it's, it's, coming back to that capitalist element of universities, it's cheaper for them to hire on a sessional contract. Mm. basis. I mean, it's the States is worse, right? If you are, if you are teaching okay. a contract in the States, it's like the, the pay is worse. It's yeah. But it's, um, it's an advantage to the system not to hire somebody on a tenure track mm-hmm. basis, because then you have to pay somebody like a full professor salary, right? Yes. Versus yes. you can just pay a sessional structure uh, instructor, rather not a lot of money to do this okay. amount of work. Of course, okay. the university is incentivized by that, right? Part of it too, is that enrollment, at least before COVID, I, enrollment was steadily decreasing, at least in English right. over the last number of years. Like our classes were getting smaller and smaller. People were going into other fields, right? At the undergraduate level. So there even the pool of of courses available for sessional instructors shrunk. So even like you'd have full professors who were like, oh, I guess I'm not teaching this course because nobody signed up for it. Right? Like Yeah, right. Yeah. And so yeah. like they, the university has to give the the tenured faculty those like the courses that are part of their contract. Yeah. So it's I, I get it. Like there's a practical element to that, but there's also like this system itself is also quite nefarious if you are that person who's on that sessional treadmill like you you like the work you love the students you you know but it's not sustainable because it is so precarious and one year you might not have anything right so it's 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 a system that doesn't that doesn't cultivate sort of intergenerational quality of instruction. I'll just put it that way. Okay. Yeah. It's such an interesting one for me to listen to because we as a society value mm-hmm. qualifications, that piece of paper, the education, you know, we are more likely to 
listen to someone and give credence to someone's opinion and voice mm-hmm. if they are qualified or higher qualified. And yet yeah. we don't offer stability once we have qualifications like mm-hmm. that or offer opportunity yeah. to get qualifications like that. And I know like I've got two degrees and a dip ed and there's a lot of people they're pushing now, especially at education level to do your master's. So I did my undergrad degrees and then I did a diploma of education. I got into the classroom. It was quicker, probably cheaper at the time, I'm sure. And I didn't see the need to go any further than that because I wanted to be a classroom teacher. Now the rhetoric from universities is, no, 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 you go in with a master's. And so there are people coming in as graduate teachers that are more highly qualified than me, but don't have any experience. And I don't know necessarily if it makes them better to hire because schools know that without experience there's only so much you can really bring to a job and so we yeah it's just a hard one I know mm-hmm. private schools love mm-hmm. the masters they love people that come, come in with those higher qualifications because it sounds better to the clientele that they're selling to but it's a bigger debt mm-hmm. is it is it going to get you the better job at the end of the day I don't know and this is the problem that we're, we're talking about now. You've done, you're highly qualified. You have so much information to give. And yet it's the same people sitting in those positions that hold them forever. Because if you get them, why would you ever let them go? Why would you? It's a, it's a, it's an amazing job, right? So like, why would you retire? There's no like best buy date, you know, on that job package, right? Yes. Yeah, no. And, and I hear what you're saying too. Like there's, there's absolutely something to be said for experience, but it doesn't, you can't the system that, actually though, doesn't, sometimes. does not. That's true. That's true. I mean, yeah, it, like you can come down, like oh, I've taught this, I've taught this field or I've taught that field or whatever, but the way that the university system, at least here is structured is it's, you're rewarded for having less experience, right. For being like, quote unquote, fresher, mm. right. Off the press and not, not having as much teaching experience. So it's, it's, um, it's an interesting structure. Yeah. So let me ask you why Victorian literature, why is it that, abuse of power or manipulation of power and gender biases that you find so interesting to teach? Mm. I mean, I feel like those issues are like so, so just relevant today. Of course. Right. Yeah. And I I feel like with like the the knowledge um, and the research that I've done over the years, to me, it's, it's rewarding to put that in a context for students that is applicable to not only their understanding of history, to not only understand, not only their understanding of, like the kinds of ideologies that have uh, legacies today and that still inform our thinking today, but also to sort of like understand, well, how does this impact our own understanding of our contemporary world, right? How people are classed, gendered, raced. I, I want students to think about that. And I think Victorian period is interesting. Like it, I, I could have studied anything and probably really liked it, but I, I think the Victorian period is interesting because it's, not our contemporary period, but it's not that long ago. Yeah. Right? And so particularly understandings of, of gender and race that get really entrenched in the Victorian period are so, so very much the ones that we see today. That for me, that's like a fruitful opportunity to unpack some of those structures in the classroom. So I don't know that much about that particular time period, but I do love talking about the fact that we've constructed so many things in society that we that we take as truth like gender Mm -hmm. and you know who has power and why they have power and we just absorb and believe 
rather than question. So what are some of the things that you try and dismantle that come out of that period that you can share with us today? Like one really tangible, I think like readily identifiable example is the kinds of masculinity that got sort of championed, entrenched from sort of the mid 19th century on, because the kind of like hyper-masculine sort of muscular Christian stoic, stiff upper lip, tough, not necessarily highly educated, but like martially adept, right? Like thinking of like physical masculine prowess, like those, those kinds of values, right? That were really useful for narratives of empire and colonial domination. Those kinds of values are still very, I think, resonant today in terms of, in terms of at least cult, like, or dominant culture, understandings of masculinity, right? And so explaining to students like that, like that, those values are historically located. Mm. They're rooted in this particular time for a particular purpose. You know, if you go back, like, you know, a hundred years before that, men were rewarded for having feelings and sentiment and sort of being, just being what we would understand now to be sort of softer. And so like, sometimes it blows students' minds. They're like, What? masculinity wasn't always exactly like this, like we understand it today. So like that I think is so liberating because it, it not just frees up like our own identity, but like for making space for other people's identity on their own terms, just for example, right. Which is like, it's huge if we can do that. Well, it exemplifies the fact that it is literally a construct rather than a truth. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And it's, it's just one like little shortcut right i mean same same with race right we can we can historically locate the understanding of race at least in 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 terms of british culture before we understood race to be this sort of primary marker of difference it was religion right so mm. like unpacking those sort of historical developments and and the the emergence and entrenchment of those constructs that opens up opportunities for for students to just think about our contemporary world in new ways, you know? Mm. What are some of your wishes around power and those, that misuse of power and those constructions that we have allowed to be perpetuated over time? What are some of the things that you would like to see shift, do you think, as someone who has that knowledge? How much time do we have? (laughs) Give me a couple. Give me a top. Like everything, everything, everything. Like, (laughs) oh God, like... If women and racialized people and gender diverse people could have access to physical safety as, as an expectation, that would be a really great start, you know, because at the very level of physical safety, we don't have equality. If we even started there, that would be great. But it does, but it's not just, of course, it's not just limited to the physical, right? The reason that I believe teaching rhetoric and narrative and those kinds of literary strategies and how we make arguments, how does this text make an argument? What is that argument? What is the construct? I think the reason I think that that's valuable is because we actually see how violence is perpetuated at a multitude of levels and on a spectrum, right? Mm. Because when somebody is physically in danger from another person, it's because they're not being like their humanity is not being seen right? They're being othered. 
um, they're being marginalized. And our societies need to be tearing down these structures that create that marginalization at an ideological level. So if we can start breaking down those those narratives just get so entrenched over time, those biases, those like those institutional mechanisms that keep people, I guess, like perpetuating the same kind of thinking, right? Mm. Um, that is dehumanizing. Mm. If we can break those down, that's how we start to create massive social change, right? Because those narratives and ideologies have impacts on our physical safety. They have impacts on mm. our economic security, on our stability, on our health. These are systemic dynamics of oppression that we're talking about. And that, Laura, that is what I would like to see changed ASAP. Yes. Yes. But it's also too, like, there's too much, in my opinion, defense taken. You know, it's if we point something out, there is a group of people that are defensive or feel blamed. Mm -hmm. And rather than just stepping away from it and taking it personally, if we just look at it for what it is, Mm -hmm. you can't argue with the oppression that our world has seen for a very long time, but certainly more so for particular minority groups. But I think it's that defensiveness and that feeling of blame that stops people moving forward because they don't want to take responsibility because then it means that, yeah, they're part of the problem. And it's very hard. Like I read Glennon Doyle's book called Untamed and she talks about the fact that racism is so just part of our being that we absorb without realizing Mm -hmm. that we might have a judgment of somebody that looks a certain way or does a certain thing or has a certain ritual. And the idea of calling someone out for being racist Mm -hmm. and taking that is so deeply offensive to us. We can't own it. It's very hard to own that we have internalized racism Mm -hmm. because Mm-hmm. It's very hard for us to accept, but most people will have some, mm-hmm. whether you want to or not. Right. That's the world you live in, and that's the yeah. world that has been constructed and shown to you. Yeah, yeah. You have to make a conscious effort to step away from it or unravel it for yourself, because our world is systemically racist in some yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're like, you're hitting the nail on the head when you say that the, de- the defensiveness around it is a huge problem because nobody wants to think of themselves as mm. racist, right? No way. But here's, or oppressing any other group. Right. I don't want to think about because that. Because there's so, so many elements to that, right? So one of the element is, one of the elements is like, if somebody has to acknowledge that, that their mode of existing, the privilege that they have is resulting in somebody else's oppression. One of the aspects of mm. that is they would also have to admit that the meritocracy is in fact a myth. They didn't necessarily earn all these privileges that they have, right? It was a lot easier for them because of their race or their gender or their class or their hair, whatever, right? So they don't want to acknowledge that actually I had several boosts here, right? The other thing is when some people choose to get defensive instead of listening, right? Oftentimes what's going on there is that their privilege of not having to think about their race or their gender is getting taken away from them, right? And it is a privilege, you know, yep. to to not have to think about how, how you are racialized or gendered or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have to think about that. Then they suddenly have to think about that. And that feels oppressive because that privilege 
is being taken away, right? So when mm-hmm. privilege comes up against this imperative for equality, they often choose to focus on the lack, right? That lack that they have. But in fact, mm-hmm. that's a total lack of perspective and not considering what somebody else is actually in comparison having to struggle with, right? Be- because of these societal structures, yes. right? You know, my husband, Tom, we've had several conversations around gender because we both, you know, we've got a son and a daughter and I've been very open about my experiences living as a a woman that he's never considered. And I showed him, there's a great show, Australian show called The Hunting, if you Hmm. can find it, do. It's all about toxic masculinity. It's happening at at a high school level. And in the end, there's a teacher that says, I want you to consider all the ways that you have felt you've had to protect yourself against violence. Yeah. Just walk into your yep. car. She asked the group of males first and they're like, what do you mean? For girls, we've got keys in between our hands. We've got our phone out. We're, you know, making sure we're not walking in the dark. We're making sure that we're walking at appropriate times. We're making sure we're in a well-lit street. We're making sure we've told, like, all of these things. And even Tom watching that was like, is this what you think about? I said, yeah, I don't even like to take the bin out at night in the dark, Tom. It's just those things that... In a way, we assume, I assumed he understood that. And it's not to say that he wasn't empathetic when I spoke about it, but I assumed he understood that that was what went through women's heads. And I was actually quite surprised when he was like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. You know? And so that's the thing. Like, I was lucky in that moment that, you know, we talk a lot yeah. about things, but that there was listening there. But I think oftentimes it's that inability to listen to somebody else's story that stops a lot of progress. And we deserve to be listened to. It's just, it's oh my a gosh, baseline, right? And yay, Tom, right? Good job, right? Listening, because it's so important. <laughs> Tom, if you're listening, I'm proud of you. Good work. So, <laughs> um, but it's, you're, you're absolutely, like, that's such, a, that's such a relevant example, Laura, because it so often comes down to not thinking about it because you don't have to, because it's not likely to happen to you, Right. Can we listen in a different way, right? So for, you know, for you and I, we're straight white women, right? What are the, what are all the things we don't have to think about? A hundred percent. Right. So it's, you know, I think, I think taking a more like active, a more active stance in terms of listening to like people's experiences and what, you know, like there's, there's so much available on social media now, like what can we do to be good allies? Mm. And one of those, well, I think one of those things is, talking to other straight white people about what what privilege actually looks like right and so the kind of conversation that you had with tom right about this is something women have to think about like the world over right like Mm. whether we're taking bins out or or like going to work Mm. in the middle of the night like whatever this is a thing we have in common that we we live in a society that forces us to think about these things Mm -hmm. right and if he as a as a dad to your daughter is like oh right it's gonna be her experience is going to be fundamentally different from my son's, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's something, right? Because then he's actually going to be thinking about that for other women as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, also understanding that he has a responsibility as a father to a boy. Yes. To ensure that those stereotypes are not perpetuated for him and that that's he doesn't it. enact those kinds of behaviors. And that's what I see out at the moment is that idea of we don't need to educate women because women already know. We know, we know. you know, whereas it's the people that don't exactly what we were saying before, that idea of privilege 
is the fact that you don't have to think about it. You don't have to consider. And so it's those people that don't have to consider that need to be told how their behaviour can perpetuate the things that Mm -hmm. other minority groups must consider for their Mm -hmm. safety and for their lifestyle to Mm -hmm. be a safe one. Yeah. She's just nodding at me. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) Just nodding pensively at Laura. I'm like, yes, keep going. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Um, I also do want to talk about the fact that you are a women's self-defense instructor. Mm -hmm. So why? Why is that Um, important to you? So so to preface, that's actually my main job. Um, Yeah, I sort of gravitated more like towards that well, about seven years ago, actually, shortly after I finished my PhD, I was like, this is amazing. I just happened to take a course from an amazing Wendo instructor and was like, this is revolutionary. This is so unlike any kind of other course I've had before. And all the, all the issues that we've been talking about so far, like breaking down stereotypes and those colonial narratives around race, gender, and identity to me that that unfolded at a physical visceral level Mm. and I wanted other women to have that same training that same knowledge so I just dove in and I yeah it's like my favorite my favorite thing to do with my time is teach this this training right so yeah it's so when you ask why it's everything this is the biggest difference I can actually make in our world Okay. Is as far as my personal impact is concerned at this time, this is just how I feel. It's, it's, um, even with the pandemic, we, our organization is going ahead with virtual training. I so want to be back physically in the classroom because it is that physical embodiment of taking up the space that we deserve to take up as women. But being able to teach one woman, one girl at a time, um, a set of physical skills as well as, theoretical knowledge and analysis around gender-based violence is personally some of the most rewarding work I've ever done. And I feel like this is some of the most tangible change I can bring into being. So that's what I do. It's so interesting that the thread has always been there, hasn't it? And yet the end point isn't what you expect leaving high school, that you'll end up being a women's self and self-defense instructor. But it was always that questioning of, does it have to be like this? Where does this come from? How can we dismantle it? If we understand the, the root cause, can we then identify the fact that it doesn't have to be like that? And so it's really interesting to see your journey. It seems like to me following the breadcrumbs, right? Just following the thing that mm. interests you. You probably would never have come out of school and been a women's self-defense instructor. You know what? I might have. Oh, if- <laughs> If I had taken, no, if I had been introduced to it yeah, at right. 18, I might've been, you know, yeah. I might've been, I might've done my bachelor concurrently. I might've done my master's and PhD concurrently. It's like, who knows? I really don't know. Yeah. But honestly, I'm like, oh, it, honestly, Laura, if I could have taken a course at 18, I would have. Yeah. And that, that, do you not? It's who knows, right? Do you not think it was a big deal? Like it certainly wasn't something advertised to you, I guess, at that time. This is something you could have been doing. No, definitely not. No, I no. I mean, I I was I was raised as a feminist. That's for sure. Yeah. So I kind of I had the I had the tools, but also it's like it's feminism is a practice, right? It's not suddenly like okay, I know like here's this theory. I'm set for life. It's not like that, right? So it's. It's a practice. It's learning. It's reminding because there's so much 
out there in the world in terms of horrible narratives about what we can and cannot accomplish as women, right? And I think resisting those and understanding the fact and the means by which oppression is multifaceted, right? It happens, it happens at the level of gender, of race, of class and sexual orientation, you know, so it's so many different facets to oppression. And so our analysis is always evolving too, right? Like, okay, how do we, how do we challenge this? And so I think like, uh, it's definitely something I would have gravitated to at 18, say, Yeah. but I, having said that, taking the path that I did and sort of letting my interest in these like humanities questions kind of fuel my decisions was also like, I use, I use it, right. I use the analysis that I've built, you know, over my life yeah. in my perspective and in my teaching. And I, I do, I do think that these sort of two realms that I, I work in, right. Academia and in the sort of the real world classroom, I, I have found those experiences quite complimentary because it honestly, I feel, I feel like it helps me relate to students in more powerful ways than I would have otherwise yeah. for me personally than I would have otherwise if I personally had just done one route. Yes. So it's so interesting because obviously we met, as I said, at university in the UK and you were doing the arts literature degree, but you were also in the rock climbing club. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. You know, everything you put into your body was always about health and strength and wellness. And I hadn't been opened up to that world probably as a young girl in Australia. I don't think we sort of, yeah, I think most of the time there were still very gendered things to be doing. So most women would have been doing, you know, basketball or netball or dancing. You know, I can't imagine that many of my friends at the time going out and doing rock climbing. Not to say that that wasn't happening, but it certainly wasn't happening in the world that I was a part of. And to see you just paving the way for yourself, you had a mortgage at that time, you already bought a house. You were already just doing it your way, knowing that you could stand on your own two feet, knowing what was important to you. And so I think it's really nice that you haven't shut off any part of yourself because if you'd gone down the academic route, that real love of strength and empowerment and love of the physical, that's a whole part of who you are and was always, I think. Mm. It's so nice that we've known each other for so long, Laura, because you can, like, you can remind me of these things. I'm like, oh yeah, that's so true. (laughs) (laughs) You remind me of these parts of myself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely true. And I think that the sort of, I mean, for me, at least like the permission to live in my body has been really good for me. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And the permission to sort of have a body that is not normatively feminine. um, Okay. In a sense, do you know what I'm saying? Like it's, well, it's a strong, it's a, very strong body. Is that what you mean? Like the it's fact- a strong, it's a strong body. Yeah, it's a strong body, um, and I'm comfortable in it, yeah. right? But you know, I, I like, I do get like the odd pushback about it, right? It's sort of being like, I'm air quotes here, too much, right? Physically, too muscly, or too, too taking up too much space physically, right? Or whatever, nice. or being being yeah. too loud. And so I think mm. the permission to just live in my body and sort of at a material level, just enjoy movement and feeling just liberated to, to move and be sportive. And, mm-hmm. and all of those things has just been like, ah, uh, it's, it's like a physical embodiment of what you're talking about, I guess, just per- permission to sort of be a bit non-normative, you know? Well, I think the fact that women have been encouraged to look at their own bodies through a male gaze is deeply problematic. And I think that, (laughs) yes, right. And I think you, but you've never done that. And I found that always so liberating that 
your body was always for me I saw that you use your body as an instrument Mm. and I think that's the most powerful thing that it is not something to look at it is something to perform for you and to allow you to get into the world and I think that I hope I look at my body that way that's really beautiful and I I think that's I think that's really well said right like as it is it's it lets me have these experiences that I want to experience you know Mm -hmm. and yeah and it's for me it's it's for for what I want to do the male gaze is so shit it's so crap (laughs) you know um but you're absolutely right and it's like Mm. it's like we we absolutely do internalize those messages right and so it's work there's an emotional there's an emotional labor that goes into saying that is some bullshit I don't have to buy into that and also like lifting each other up in that process too right because that is one of the that is one of the most significant ways that we are going to break down those narratives and fight against them is to like just support each other as, as women and in the bodies that we're in, right? Because our bodies are just so beautiful the way that they are. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, it's, it's, I I want every woman to know that. And um, I, but it, but it takes work. Like it's an, it's like I said, it's a practice. Mm. Greatest lessons. Oh God. What's on the greatest? (laughs) Oh, Laura, what a question. You're so full of these really provocative questions greatest lessons I think it's a hard thing to distill down of course into a pithy answer for you but I think I'll t- okay I'll tell you what I'll tell you the lesson I'm working on right now and that is compassion for myself for others for the world I've always been a very <laughs> like I've had high standards and high expectations like of myself and and of others and I think that I'm entering a period of my life where it just, it just feels radically impactful to prioritize compassion. And it's not just because of this pandemic. It's just the more, again, learning, like the more I learn about the world and others and different perspectives, um, having value in compassion, I think is just something that I definitely want to be practicing right now. And also understanding that productivity right, is a capitalist Mm -hmm. imperative. And we don't have to Mm -hmm. buy into that. Um, And so being compassionate with ourselves when we are both feeling the imperative to be productive in the sort of tangible sense that we're all trained to be, and also compassionate when we're sort of giving ourselves permission to resist that imperative and just enjoy the, the moment or the present. And also that one of the, one of those elements of the present is that very human interaction, connection, emotional intimacy, and just celebrating that as a really important thing in life, I think is, yeah. I don't know if that's like a life lesson, but that's definitely something I'm like turning over these days. Yeah. I don't know if that has anything to do with education, but it's, I think it does speak to. I don't think it has. Well, I think. I think learning is what it is. I think, as you said at the very beginning of this episode, that learning can happen in a formal classroom, but there's so much learning to do outside of that. And I think giving yourself compassion and having compassion for others is an incredible life lesson. Mm. It's, It's definitely a way of inhabiting the world, for sure. And honestly, like, we can talk about all sorts of different theories and, and periods and, and structures, but also I think, like, the way you physically inhabit the world is like putting your money where your mouth is, you know, and just, mm-hmm. if you want to change things, just 
be the way that you want things to be. So yeah, it's a mode of being. I love that. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for Thank having me. Thank you so much me. for spending your time with me. Oh, it's lovely. It's so good to see you. We'll have to do a proper catch up anyway. Yeah, yeah, we will. Outside of these interviews. <laughs> Thank you. Sounds good. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's been so nice to chat with you, Laura.